welcome to episode 25, our quarantine conversation. I'm here with Pablo, and I'm Erica. Hey. We watched Home Alone, in which a young sadist practices arts. (laughs) And we watched Castaway, where a guy is stuck on an island. That's the fuck of volleyball. (laughs) And Rear Window, in which a deviant peeping Tom almost loses his life. Deservedly so. Yeah. And definitely doesn't want to fuck or marry Grace Kelly, but possibly kill? Oh my god, yeah, fuck, marry, kill. So first of all, maybe we should just say, like, what order we think these movies go in quality-wise. For me, I was surprised because I actually thought that Rear Window was the best of the three films and is the one I hadn't seen before, whereas the other two I'd seen a bunch of times. Um, I think Castaway is actually really good too, but maybe has a lot to make fun of. Uh, and then Home Alone is definitely the worst and probably just bad as a film, period. Yeah, Home Alone, I I would say, was pretty um, poor quality watching it now. <laughs> yeah, so maybe we start there. Yeah, it's just surprising because I remember that when I was young and pretty much everyone I knew uh, absolutely loved this movie, uh, you know, like all the other kids. And I think that's just in large part because it's basically a live action Looney Tunes cartoon uh, with just a lot of like wacky hijinks and people getting hurt and somehow inexplicably being fine. I'll also forever remember that it's referenced in Dogma when uh, Selma Hayek's news character is explaining how she's responsible for every hit film of the last century except for Home Alone. She's just like, I don't know what happened there. Oh, really? <laughs> So this film's definitely notable in that it's part of the John Hughes uh, canon, technically, in that he wrote and produced it, though he did not direct it. Uh, It was directed by Chris Columbus, who went on to do the Harry Potter films later on. And, of course, this is one of the big breakout roles for Macaulay Culkin, uh, and probably the role he's most known for after sort of disappearing from Hollywood. I just wanted to say that's funny to me that Chris Columbus is at the helm of um, two children on their own movies or something. (laughs) Well, it's kind of funny, just in the same way that actors get typecast, I think directors also get typecast. Uh, You know, you can think of the Spielberg films. But basically, if you're known as a director who works well with children actors, then they'll probably look to you. So yeah, this movie's kind of weird, because it's just about, uh, you know, there's this weird layer that I don't think I picked up on when I was young, where basically uh, it's Christmas, and Macaulay Culkin's character Kevin uh, McAllister basically hates the rest of his family and he makes like a malicious wish like a christmas wish which is that he wishes that all of them would just disappear um what i forget pablo what does his fam what does he do to his family that makes them so mad at him and then he's like oh i wish my family were gone or something i forget he pulls a prank or something let's see i kind of get this confused as well because this and home alone 2 are so similar and have so many of the same beats but what I remember is it's one of those classic 80s scenes of, like, the kids being rambunctious. And first, I think Kevin or his brother calls somebody a penis breath. Or is that an E.T.? <laughs> I don't know. There's lots of talk about penises <laughs> in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and then I think there was something about pizza. Like, uh, he oh, eats a mm. bunch of pizza and, like, throws it up or something like that. Does something gross, basically. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was something like a crowded kitchen. And I think it was actually just a mistake where Kevin causes like a spillage of food or something. And then I I remember being like, wow, his family reacted really negatively to just a mistake. 
Oh yeah, it's kind of like that Harry Potter roll doll thing where all the adults are the worst and the kids always like a victim of their being idiots. Right. But then the uncles immediately like watch what you're doing a little shit or something like that. Yeah, yeah, they all like gang up on poor Kevin and send him to the attic. <laughs> and to be fair, I will say that all the children's behavior is pretty realistic. Uh, seems true to form and true to the holidays of everyone like being way too stressed. It's also kind of weird because it seems like whatever Kevin's father does, he's like independently wealthy or something uh, since they're about to travel to France. Um, and then also they have a huge house. And I thought it was kind of a missed opportunity because they could have just thrown in a line where it's like, oh, yeah, Kevin's dad, the inventor or something or like set up why uh, Kevin is able to do any of this stuff that he does in the movie. Yeah, there was like a huge actually like class commentary in this movie because the brother, I think, of the dad doesn't have all the money. And so I think maybe the the dad, McAllister, is paying for the trip or something like that. So there's kind of like an emasculation of his brother with his wife or whatever. Like they have a crappy relationship, I think. And then also the people trying to break into the house the entire time are clearly painted as not having a lot of money. I felt kind of bad for them seeing like their clothes and stuff that they were wearing. Yeah, so I don't know. The 90s was obsessed with wealth, I guess, in this like giant McMansion, <laughs> the McAllister family. It's because the uncle's a beta cuck. Yeah, basically. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then they have to show how crime is so bad that they need a 94 crime bill to <laughs> really crack down on people. Oh my gosh, that's so true. I wonder how much this went into that narrative of like people trying to break in and you can't... Yeah, there's, there's crime everywhere, rampant crime. After Home Alone 2, Marv and the other one have to go to jail for life. Because <laughs> it's a three strike. <laughs> oh, Harry and Marv. Yeah, mandatory minimums or something. <laughs> And I will say this entire cast is kind of like a wealth of really good actors uh, kind of slumming it in this movie, frankly. Joe Pesci, Daniel Stern, Catherine O'Hara are all hilarious. And they're actually hilarious in this, even though the movie itself isn't very good. And then you have John Williams doing what's a pretty classic soundtrack, I would say. Like, a lot of people kind of associate it with Christmas whenever they hear it. Um, John Candy, did you say John him? Candy's in it, yeah. Um and I would say, like, all the scenes without Kevin, when it's kind of just, like, his family and his mom trying to get back home, are kind of stronger, uh, in my opinion, than the stuff that's just Kevin. Because it has that John Hughes film uh, style of just, like, very naturalistic but funny dialogue and a lot of, like, improv, I assume. I think they had John Candy for just a day and basically had him film all his scenes in that day. Uh, and that's some of the funniest <laughs> stuff. And then, of course, the reason why I think there's, at this point, five or six sequels is that uh, the movie was made for $18 million, but then it w went on to make $467 million, essentially, Ooh. which is insane. That, wow. <laughs> and even the sequel uh, cost $28 million, but that one grossed $359 million. So they really caught on something in the zeitgeist. I don't know. Everyone was feeling mean. <laughs> Everyone loved pizza. <laughs> I think that's what it was. Pizzagate. Stay at home and eat pizza and watch TV. That was the 90s. I mean, sounds great. <laughs> well, yeah, I actually was going to say that with this whole, uh, with social isolation or social distancing or whatever, lockdowns and yeah. staying at home, 
I kind of had the reaction of Kevin at first in the movie where he's like, yes, I have the whole house this to myself. Awesome. <laughs> I can eat whatever I want from the fridge and watch all the movies. Ninja Turtles, stay- radical. Yeah, stay in my PJs. <laughs> but then as it goes on, you kind of wish it would end. <laughs> oh, yeah. Then the spirit of Christmas teaches him a lesson not to wish, not to wish for things you don't actually want. He says, I miss my mommy. And then he meets that old man uh, who tells him that he can never see his son or something like that. Oh my gosh, that's right. Who was his neighbor? Was his neighbor a famous actor or just some random guy? Old man Marley. um, I think it's just some random guy as far as I know. Okay, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wow. Oh yeah, but okay, so with with his free time though, Kevin chooses to watch like old-timey movies about toxic masculinity and that's where he gets his ideas to like fight off the bad guys and he says something about like i'm the man of the house and so i was like oh no he's already absorbed like gotta protect my property (laughs) oh i gotta stand my ground right so it is interesting that the neighbor was uh the lesson was actually to have more feelings i guess and to love your family empathize except for the dirty rotten cr- criminals yeah except for the- <laughs> even though i'm pretty sure that marvin harry like specifically were scouting out houses that were going to be empty so they never actually intended to hurt anyone they just like, wanted their crap oh yeah and they had this whole thing they were just getting empty homes and then leaving the hose running or something to be the wet bandits <laughs> I mean, I do like how stupid Daniel Stern is in this movie. Yeah. Oh, and apparently uh, Joe Pesci actually wanted to curse when he was filming this movie, but since obviously it's a kid movie, he had to just make up like rackin' frackin' schnackin' rackin'. Kind of like Looney Tunes curses. There was a lot of that. Yeah. But I think it would have been a lot better if they just let him curse like in Goodfellas or whatever. (laughs) Gotta get that fucking kid. I don't know. (laughs) Would have been more authentic. Yeah, it would have been pretty funny, though. Or it would have been funnier. So, yeah, basically, at the beginning of the movie, uh, Marv is, like, casing out the joint, disguised as a cop, and that's how uh, Kevin recognizes him earlier and sort of realizes what's going on. And I do think it's kind of surprising that, you know, obviously Macaulay Culkin is uh, pretty good in this movie, and then he went on to do a few other movies and then sort of just disappeared. I assume he was, like, busy with Mila Kunis or whatever. Uh but it is kind of weird that he just kind of like was a kid actor and then just sort of vanished almost. Meanwhile, his brothers, Kieran and Rory, have like really good careers and have been in a bunch of movies. Now, in my opinion, have been like way more talented than him just by like sustaining their skill level, I guess. Oh, and Home Alone was actually trending recently. Uh, I think Chris Evans or something tweeted that he didn't realize that the uh, film within a film that Kevin watches is actually something that the production made up for the movie. Angels with filthy souls. <laughs> yeah, and I actually didn't realize that either, uh, but it makes sense, obviously. Oh, I wanted to say something about that. So I had written there's also a book in the movie called Nobody's Angel. Hmm. I don't know what, what scene that's in, but uh, I had written it in my notes. And so I think that's very interesting, but that's a real book, I think, Nobody's Angel. So many angels. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that Kevin is nobody's angel, and then the angels with filthy souls are, like, the adults, or the pe- they're getting, you know, like, told by the spirit of Christmas that they have to have better souls or whatever. Yeah, um, and I mean, even though most of the family isn't really filled in, uh, obviously the mother is, like, really shocked and sad and wants to get back to Kevin with, by all costs. 
And by the end, I think the dad also comes around. It's like, oh, crap, we shouldn't have done that. But yeah, definitely by the beginning of the movie, they're like really shallow and they're just caring about like uh, who's going to pay for the pizza. Like you messed up the pizza. Go hang out in your brother Bud's room with the tarantula. None of them assert their rights when the cop, when the fake cop tries to just like come in. He's like, what's going on here? And they're just like, oh, hello, officer. Yeah, Instead like, of saying, do you have, do you a, have warrant? a warrant? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say that what, I think Kevin uh, learned, like he's, maybe, or maybe he's a budding anarchist. Like he ultimately knew not to call the cops in this whole movie. He just... Oh yeah, that is funny. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I'm going to do some vigilante justice. Yeah, exactly. I think, like, his plan was to sort of, uh, what's the word, stall them and then eventually call the cops because I think that's what he does at the very end. But yeah, it is weird because he could just do that at the beginning and kind of solve this whole problem. But yeah, obviously, it's like he is trying to assert his independence and, like, go out in the world and, like, buy toothbrushes or whatever. Oh, wait, doesn't he shoplift, though? Well, he gets confused with the money or something or gets anxious and, like, forgets to give them money or, like, somehow he accidentally steals a toothbrush. So, if anything, he should be the one going to jail. No, I thought that I was, like, um, it's interesting how the class differences mean that these guys stealing are, are criminals and Kevin's just a rich kid, so he gets away with a it. foolish white kid. Thank God he's white. I will say this is a pretty well-paced movie, although I was also kind of surprised that uh, once the hijinks and antics start, it isn't actually that much of the movie. Like, a lot of it's just build-up and him just kind of, like, uh, planning things. Like, the, I think I timed it. The actual segment where he's, like, doing these death traps is kind of just, like, 15 minutes or something like that. It's way less in the movie than I thought. And again, I might be conflating it with the sequel, which I think tries to sort of spread it out throughout more. Oh, yeah, because I had all I had remembered from it was the, like rube goldberg machine the elaborate like setup or whatever he had right and it is also kind of funny with the sequel they just go like the standard sequel route of like make everything bigger and like now he's in new york and he's like taking over a whole like townhouse in new york and then he has to like fool a lot more people like he stays in a hotel and has to fool a bunch of people in the hotel oh, right. and they make it more toyetic because instead of just having a regular tape recorder he has like the what was it talk boy <laughs> I think my brother had one of those. It was actually pretty fun. You could, like, make your voice chipmunk fast or, like, really deep. Oh, that's cool. I did not have that. So, yeah, they kind of show that Kevin's pretty smart uh, because he manages to outsmart the pizza guy. He, like, plays back the movie uh, in such a way that the pizza guy gets tricked. Uh, and then yeah. later when he realizes that the Marvin Harry are kind of casing his house, he, like, sets up a fake party. It's a pretty memorable scene with a bunch of, like, mm -hmm. funny uh, cutouts, like Michael Jordan and stuff. Right. And Michael Jackson. 90s Just people. Kidding. <laughs> Thriller. <laughs> oh, no. Then the police are like, oh, nothing to see here. <laughs> yeah. So what do we like about this movie? Um, I really like the scene with the church where it gets really dramatic with the music. Um, mm. And I do like the old man. Uh, though, again, they double down the sequel where they have like a pigeon lady or whatever. Oh, my God. Pigeon woman. And I think it's funny uh, in a good corny way that, like, they're imparting all these life lessons or whatever. It's like, here's the theme of the movie or whatever. Yeah, I guess in theory he, I don't know, it's like he both learned toxic masculinity, but also he learned to love his family, I guess. So that's less toxic. I, guess, I don't know. But it's also pretty clear that he prefers his mother and doesn't really care for his father, his uncle, his brother, cousins that's or whatever. That's true. All the bros suck. Oh, yeah, they're like, go sleep with Rory Culkin, uh, who wets his bed every day. No! 
<laughs> Which is, I guess, how... Oh, and I love the, like, convoluted setup of how he gets left behind. It's like, first he's sleeping in the wrong bed, so no one thinks to look for him. And then he's... Yeah. Uh, some stupid neighbor kid's coming over and, like, bothering everybody. Oh, and he's wearing a mask, maybe? He's wearing the same exact, like, hat and basically almost the same outfit that... Uh, kevin would have worn so they just throw him in the van i think yeah so then the van driver like gets a count of how many people are in there and he gets the count wrong because of the kid who just like leaves although it would have been funnier if they had taken him yeah with them it's also funny in the sequel uh it's definitely a pre-9-11 movie because somehow kevin gets on a wrong flight to new york instead of wherever his family goes in that one <laughs> which yeah. never happened today because of all the security checks and all that <laughs> yeah. you can't just like get on some random other flight which i guess you could have back then Oh my gosh, yeah. Sounds like a lot of fun, frankly. <laughs> yeah, once you get into the airport, you can just jump onto any terminal you want. So let's see, I think this is probably filmed in Chicago, though I didn't double check, because uh, that's where like most John Hughes movies are kind of centered. I know that the mom was trying to get back to Chicago. Oh, okay, there you go. So it's at least set in Chicago. A McMansion in Chicago. <laughs> oh my wow. god, yeah, wealthy Chicago suburbs like everyone lives in. <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah, and then his mom has to make her way through Scranton, Pennsylvania, where she says hi to Pam and Jim from the office. Yeah. Oh, and you were telling me something interesting about the word booby trap. Oh, yeah, that it actually is from, yeah, all the booby traps in this movie. But yeah, the booby is from, like, the bird, the blue-footed booby type bird that's just, like, a silly bird, not a not-smart bird. Uh, for some reason, a lot of these, a lot of the aspects of the movie were, were up for like Academy Awards, which is kind of funny. Or Golden Globes. Yeah, Golden Globes and Academy Awards, like for Best Actor and Best Music, Best <laughs> Best Motion Picture, Musical or Comedy. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. This movie does a good job of centering the movie in like a Christmas feel, like you never doubt when it's supposed to take place. Oh yeah, no wonder this thing made so much money. Yeah, I mean. Same stuff is true now that was true back then, which is just that, uh, you know, they make these dumb movies for stupid kids, and then they drag their parents there. If you have a boy wearing a sweater and it's over Christmas time, you're going to make a bunch of money. It's also kind of funny because I think in a lot of ways, the Harry Potter franchise took over the sort of mantle of, like, the Christmas movies. Mm -hmm. I think they came out every Christmas, basically. Chris Columbus is here to teach us about the meaning of christmas the actual antics are pretty creative i guess but also super violent uh let's see what he's just he do? like looney tunes yeah exactly he like heats up a doorknob so that they burn their hands uh he sets up like a torch so they burn their heads he like Ugh. ices down all the stairs and stuff so they slip all over the place oh uh, yeah they get traumatic injuries all over the place uh, I think Harry gets a nail through the foot. Very a quiet place. Spoilers. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. There's like tar all over the floor, so he loses his socks. Uh, mm. I think he like breaks a bunch of ornaments and stuff, and like sprinkles them all over the floor, so they oh. have to stab themselves. Oh my god! And by the way, at what point would you, as the thief, have just been like, "Fuck this! I'm going somewhere else"? Like right away. <laughs> as soon as I saw there was someone home, I'd be like, "Okay, I'm leaving now." Yeah, but, I mean, okay, aside from the fact that Macaulay Culkin does a fairly okay performance and the other two are pretty funny, they're like a kid's movie, I guess, 
I'd say the direction in general isn't very strong. Like, it's very journeyman. Like, anyone could probably have directed it, essentially, as long as they had the script and all the antics worked out. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, there's a ton of product placement. American Airlines, Pepsi, Tropicana, whatever the pizza company is that they order from. Dodge. Well, the pizza company's a joke because it's Nero, like, instead, oh, of, yeah. Little instead of Little Caesars. Oh, yeah, instead of Little Caesars. Mm-hmm. But everything else is true product placement. Oh, Kevin shoots Marvin the dick. When they're, like, trying to get in through the docky door, he's, like, oh pointing at the God. BB gun. Jeez. Kevin's a dangerous sadist. It's the only way he gets off. He's proving Tipper Gore and everyone right that, like, watching movies makes you violent. He learned it from the movie. In oh, the, yeah. In, within the movie. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, no, it's very Freudian. He has to prove he's a real person by killing and taking out these other people. He's like, mm. I'm a real man now. I'm a real boy. But yeah, lots of people have joked about how this should have been the prequel to Saw or something. I think even recently they just came out with some movie called Becky that seems very similar to this, except she actually kills a bunch of people. It's like set in a forest, it's kind of like Rambo, and she has a bunch of death traps to kill white supremacists or something like that. Ooh, wow. I haven't seen it, but I think we were joking that they should have made a sequel to this that's more, or like a reboot that's gritty and like realistic and he actually kills them or whatever. Yeah, I think that um, after this movie, like, because Kevin's mom tried to call the police and be like, hey, there's a ki- an eight-year-old child alone. Could you actually be helpful for once? And they're like, no. <laughs> and they don't care. And so I feel like, and then Kevin also learned to, like, just be independent and not call the cops and that they're just incompetent or whatever. So I feel like the next movie is just him being a full-on anarchist and realizing not to use his Rube Goldberg machine against... Um, you know, the underclass or whatever, but against the, his own wealthy family. <laughs> he becomes the Punisher. <laughs> He's like, what do I care? They're already dead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, but we had also said that the natural conclusion of this movie would be that the state would come and like take the kid away because his parents are oh, clearly yeah. negligent idiots. <laughs> and that would have perfectly That's set up the sequel. Where He's like independent. That's true. Oh my God. Let's see, I wrote down a few more antics. Uh, Harry pulls a light switch, which causes an iron to fall into his head. There's a bunch of paint cans set up at the top of a stairwell that he throws down, which would definitely have, according to Mythbusters, have cracked their skulls open. And then, and then that's the point when they like go upstairs, and he like has a zip line to go to his treehouse, where he calls the cops. And he thinks he's going to like outsmart them, but then Marv suddenly gets smart, and he's like, oh, I know exactly where he's going to go. And that's, when, and that's when they like catch him. Wait, he does call the cops at some point? Yeah, he, like, takes a zip line to his treehouse where he has a phone line, I guess. Oh, my God. Wait, he's so rich he has a phone line in his treehouse? <laughs> <Yep>. Wow. <laughs> I did not even remember that. I hate this kid now. Maybe he calls him before <laughs> he does the zip line. I don't really remember. But. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, they, like, get him up on the door, and I'm like, jeez, what could they do to him? Right. But fortunately, they both get a shovel to the face because creepy old man uh, has... <sighs> come to his rescue yeah in reality he probably should have asked his neighbor for help sooner yeah that's true but throughout the film there's the whole thing of like the kids think he's creepy or whatever they think he's like done something right well at least after he talks to him at the church or whatever and they open up to each other then he could have been like hey by the way could i i could use your help it's funny there's just enough warmth or like sympathy or like human connections for if you're a kid especially for it to bypass the fact that he's like severely entered these men and is a horrible sadist 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, it doesn't really work to apply the Looney Tunes physics to real life. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I also forgot at some point. Uh, I think. Oh, the tarantula. The kid gets the tarantula and like puts it on Marv, and then Harry's like smashing him with a crowbar, which would also definitely kill him. Oh my gosh, the tarantula. Yeah. Wow, the whole podcast is just us listing things that Kevin McAllister did. That's kind of what the movie is, to be fair. <laughs> like, at a certain point, just becomes, like, here's another one wacky, like, hijink after another. Yes. One, like, setup and punchline or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'd say it's very similar to Rear Window in a way, uh, in the sense that it's just this kid who's, like, isolated and gets all these crazy ideas in his mind. He's the only one seeing these guys, too, kind of like Rear Window. <laughs> They're just figments of his imagination. <laughs> it's actually just some yes. Girl Scouts. <laughs> like, hey, want to buy some cookies? <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. Anyway, I think we've belabored this enough. Uh, I don't really have anything else to say about Home Alone, except it's kind of baffling that it made so much money. And I guess it's entertaining if you're a kid, but not really at all if you're an adult. Mm-hmm. probably not entertaining to most kids even but so actually maybe we should talk about rear window next because i think it's kind of more related to this movie so i haven't seen like every alfred hitchcock movie so like i've seen a few uh and for whatever reason i've never been that impressed with like the writing in a hitchcock movie but this one which was written by john michael hayes was actually really strongly written in my opinion Oh, it's not written by Hitchcock. Okay. Yeah, and it got four Academy Award nominations and it's on the AFI uh, Top 100 Movies list. Okay. Oh, yeah, I read that. Let's see. It's like in the Library of Congress National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. But I'm like, really? Like, isn't something even just like Pokemon more culturally significant, had more cultural impact than this? I mean, if you look at the list, though, it's a bunch of movies that you wouldn't think would be on there, like a bunch of like popular mm. blockbusters and stupid movies. I'm sure Phantom Menace is probably on there because of Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. So I wouldn't I wouldn't go by that list to be like, oh, it has to be like really good. Um, okay. Not to plug another podcast, but there is another pretty good podcast where they actually go through all the AFI films in order is called unspooled uh with paul Shear and amy nicholson uh wow <laughs> and they kind of make the same comments you did just did which is like a lot of them are like i don't know either really focused on white men or like it's a lot of like westerns and crime movies and just like sort of cheesy genres that we wouldn't take that seriously nowadays Mm-hmm. yeah notice that all three of these films we watched are white men to, boys or men are white guys yeah. boys to men <laughs> Oh, gosh. <laughs> we all start boys to men. Uh, I thought uh, the main performances of the, like, sort of three protagonist characters in this movie and then the detective later on were all really strong. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, James Stewart, who, again, also got his start in Westerns, by the way. Oh, interesting. And then the girlfriend character, although it's really funny throughout the movie, it seems like he kind of hates the girlfriend or, like, doesn't want to be with her. Uh, it's Grace Kelly. Yeah, it's like, he's like, fuck Grace Kelly, she's too hot. But throughout the movie, she's like really smart and really I uh, know. pretty and all the things that people should like. He's like, she's like totally willing to like talk with them about whatever and go along with his like ideas and stuff. And he's like, ah, she's just too much like a woman. I can't, I can't like her that much. 
Yeah, I mean, it's almost like gay coding in a way or something, or maybe just like over masculinity. Yeah, I thought that that was interesting. Like, I think if you tweaked this film ever so slightly, it could be a story of this guy's feminist awakening because (laughs) the entire movie, he's kind of like, oh, my socialite girlfriend just loves gossiping and these like, you know, uh, feminine skills, like emotional intelligence or whatever, just aren't, it's not me or whatever. I don't care about people. But then the entire movie he learns that that's important because he is gossiping about all his neighbors and by following their lives, he catches a murderer and ultimately saves or, you know, catches a guy who was a domestic abuser and murderer. And so if you tweak the story slightly, it could be like his feminist, like ally of women awakening or something. Hmm, That'd be a good remake. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's a gossipy old blank. And then there's also, we should mention, uh, is it his maid or like his nurse or something? It's the insurance nurse. I guess back in the 50s, insurance companies sent <laughs> nurses to your house. Oh, well, they actually cared about you. But anyway, she's named Stella and she's played by <laughs> Thelma Ritter. And I thought she was actually really good as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's basically there to facilitate this guy's story or whatever to be like, you should marry Grace Kelly. One thing that's kind of funny about this movie, it's like uh, obviously not set on a obviously not filmed on a set when it's obviously like could not be nothing else <laughs> like it's very theatrical it is... in a way yeah it could just be um a theater piece if you could like arrange it where you could see a guy watching like a courtyard basically but i kind of liked it in a way that it was just a big set um because you really got a feel for like the uh I guess just the space in general, like every apartment in relation to the other and like how they all sort of congregate in the center courtyard. But again, I don't know. I mean, maybe that was common back then, but I I mean, I don't know that much about Greenwich Village where it's set. Yeah, if that's still a thing. Yeah, are there really like giant courtyards in the middle of giant buildings? I guess maybe like in tenements or something. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's kind of cool. I assume they like did various editing tricks to make it all seem like one seamless location. But like, for example, there's a fancy uh, condominium that they cut to several times that couldn't possibly be actually physically on the same location. Like they kind of do a whip pan sort of thing because he's staring through a telescope the entire film. Right. Or a binoculars. And again, I think that character was supposed to be like sort of gay coded as well because you just see him like playing uh, piano to himself throughout. Yeah, we thought maybe there would be some story like that, but then it was like later you know, on his girl 50s. comes there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he actually has a girlfriend. So yeah, there's like a few different, uh, I guess, storylines that he's tracking. There's like Miss Lonely Hearts, uh, who keeps trying to like date people or something. Oh, yeah, that was depressing. And there's some lady who's like waiting for her uh, soldier boyfriend to come back. <laughs> oh, a dancer. Yeah, the dancer was waiting for the boyfriend to come back, apparently. Right, right. I think he was kind of judging her as a slut, and then it turns out she just was practicing dancing and had a boyfriend. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, And then there's the couple that has the dog that ends up getting murdered halfway through the film. Oh my gosh, yeah, that fucking, the poor dog. They would, like, raise and lower the dog from a basket out the Which is really weird. (laughs) So eccentric. Yeah. Uh, it's also kind of funny because I guess this movie must be set in the summer uh, because a big part of it is just the fact that everyone's like really hot and trying to keep cool. 
so he's like also constantly like uncomfortable like both with his broken leg and then with everything else that's going on mm-hmm. he's supposed to be pre-white flight i had written down this, right. is, this is a prequel to home alone oh my god it is uh do they ever explain how he broke his leg i don't think so I know, I know he's, like, supposed to be a photographer, so sort of the implication is that he probably broke it on assignment somewhere. Oh, that's, he doesn't look through binoculars, he looks through his telephoto lens. Oh, right, right, right. Is that, yeah, because he's a photographer. Which is even creepier, because then he could take photos of you. Yeah. Apparently the character's name is LB Jeff. <laughs> I assume that's, like, an LBJ joke. Oh. <laughs> his girlfriend is Lisa Fremont. So the whole, like, central plot of the film is that he hears some, like, disturbance in the night. Looks like people oh. fighting. And for some reason that makes him assume that this random, like, creepy guy who lives by himself, presumably, uh, probably killed his wife. And then he sees uh, that same guy, like, coming out with a big suitcase the size of a human corpse. <laughs> and then he, like, variously sees throughout the film, like, other clues, like him uh, messing around with, like, knives and stuff. Yeah, it's like the wife is just gone all of a sudden. Right. So a lot of this film is kind of just the idea of, like, the mind goes to all these, like, extreme conclusions with, like, limited information, which is kind of a clever setup. It's, um, it's almost how you experience a movie like or any sort of narrative. Your mind can, can just make connections given what information you have. Right. Yeah, he has no concrete proof. Oh, I just wanted to say that it says, uh, the internet says he breaks his leg while getting an action shot of an auto race. <laughs> That's stupid. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. He's like, I was just standing in the middle of the racetrack and then a car hit my... <laughs> and I didn't even notice. <laughs> but yeah, he like really doesn't want to marry the lady, Lisa. Um... Oh, yeah, but then it's, like, the nurse is, like, you should marry her the whole time. But it's basically just, like, rich people's problems, because it's, like, she's, like, a wealthy socialite. Oh, um, I think I'd written down about one of the, uh, one of the apartments he spies on that they seemed similar to, like, the Rat Pack hanging out with Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> it's, like, JFK and his brother with Marilyn. Wait, who did? The Neighbors? It's just the lady that he thinks is a slut, and she's, like, hanging out with some guys. Mm. Yeah, she had multiple guys over trying to woo her or something. So the whole problem between the two of them is that he wants to be globetrotting, like, just traveling all over, and she wants to just, like, be set and be rich, I guess. Oh, yeah, she wants to build, I guess she wants the socialite roots in the community and to stay in New York. Yeah. This movie, I'd say, was also pretty well-paced. So yeah, I wrote down, he doesn't think people can change, and she doesn't want for anything. So basically, he's dissatisfied, and she's very satisfied. Hmm. He's crabby, and she's not. Oh, there's a really creepy scene where he, like, is staring at the person he thinks is a murderer, and then the person, like, turns out the lights, and he can see that they're staring back at him because of a cigarette or something like that. Oh my gosh, yeah. His, like, uh, the way the lighting is. When, yeah, when he has the when the neighbor has the light on, he can't see that the other guy's watching him, but he figures it out. Let's see, I think the most effective sequence in this movie is when he sends uh, Lisa, his girlfriend, over to sort of investigate and see what the hell's going on. And then you have just sort of this almost um, 2D view of, like, the apartments as, like, Lisa has to make her way through. 
and like the tension of uh the guy comes back at some point and he has to like somehow communicate for her to get out oh yeah that was like ridiculous because she was breaking and entering actually in order to try to find the evidence <laughs> so they're like vigilantes actually yeah the guy stands his ground oh my god he's kevin McAllister. <laughs> he sets he's up like an actually my trap. wife yeah my wife went away on a christmas trip and left me alone and now i've set an elaborate booby trap for you what happened was my wife was being a butthead so i wish that she would disappear <laughs> and it just happened to be christmas so my wish came true <laughs> being a big misunderstanding yeah. oh and there's a whole subplot uh because jeff as an investigative photographer i guess uh has a detective friend tom doyle and he basically asks him to figure out what's in the trunk uh, so he goes to investigate, and we don't know what's going on. But then later at the end of the movie, we find out, oh, yeah, it was a dead body. Yeah, his friend uh, is the detective guy's like, doubtful of it. So it kind of shows, like, the police missing a lot of things. Once again, James Stewart has to become, like, a vigilante and take the law into his own hands. Yep. Another, this is what happens when you're stuck at home. It's like we're powerless to help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, does the camera, is the camera always from the rear window? Well, I guess sometimes they look inside at the apartment. I mean, at the end, doesn't James Stewart have to, like, go in himself, or does the guy come to his house or something The like guy that? comes to him. Yeah, so that's when it becomes, like, a different angle. Yeah, you're right. But yeah, essentially the entire film is, like, I don't know, it's almost like uh, one of these video games where you just see things from the side, like a apartment from the side. You cut out. It's Rampage, where the monsters jump up on top and break them down <laughs> in a side-scrolling motion. Alfred Hitchcock directs Rampage. Terms of Enrampagement. <laughs> Starring The Rock. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, I just like the idea of... Uh, he's not an unreliable narrator, but you're like not sure yourself whether or not this guy did it. So you're kind of like James Stewart in a way. You're kind of like, is mm-hmm. the guy guilty? Did he do something? Is he innocent? What the hell's going on? And you get all these weird clues, mm-hmm. like he kills the dog, and then the trunk. It's because yeah. like, the dog is like uh, trying to un- unbury something hidden in the courtyard, but you don't find out what it is. Yeah, I think he dug it up. He had buried something in there and then dug it up. I think at some point before Lisa goes over, she like puts a note uh, under the apartment just to see like, how he reacts. Mm-hmm. And then we find out by the end, uh, because he's trying to kill James Stewart, that he did in fact kill his wife, uh, and he cleverly uses his flash uh, camera to blind him. Oh, yeah, he uses the ball. But doesn't he call him and say, like, he, like, threatens him on the phone, too. And then the guy comes over and attacks him. Yeah, he's basically asking, like, why are you getting in my business? Yeah. Fair, I guess. He's like, I'm allowed to murder my wife if I want to. It's right. my home. <laughs> it's the 60s. I'm Kevin McAllister. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a man in the 50s. <laughs> oh, it's based on a short story. I didn't know that. And then somehow they're both dangling out the window, uh, and James Stewart gets his other, like, broken. Oh, right. But the police manage to come in just as, just in time to, like, save him, which is kind of similar to Vertigo, which James Stewart was also in, uh, where he's, like, afraid of heights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I had actually conflated some of the things in Vertigo with this movie because of that. So yeah, it has a happy ending. Um, James Stewart, even though he's, again, housebound, now feels more connected to his neighbors. Like, he can actually understand what they're about. 
and mm-hmm. I assume he's going to uh, be happy marrying Lisa. And they realize that they can do yeah. lots of stuff while stuck in quarantine and sheltering in place. There's lots to do. <laughs> you can read, you can paint, you can take photos. <laughs> you can watch um, your neighbors. angels with dirty soul, with filthy souls. <laughs> and eat pizza. Oh my god, when did pizza delivery become a thing? I think in the 80s, which is why it's so prevalent in all these 80s and 90s movies. Like, they're really hmm. pushing it, the pizza council people. <laughs> so yeah, there's all sorts of questions about ethics and morals in this movie. Whether or not it's right to spy on people, even if they're killing people. Oh, that's true. Yeah, because the guy had a point like, why are you watching me? Um, but then if he hadn't, you know, uh, the guy would have... I guess the guy did still kill her anyways, though, but he didn't get away. He would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for you lousy kids. <laughs> if it wasn't for Kevin McAllister meddling. I wrote it down as my final note, 50s nosiness should never pay off. <laughs> but yeah, there's kind of a, I don't know, is there kind of a class thing there? Is Jimmy Stewart supposed to be wealthier than some of the other people that he's judging? Well, it's kind of like now how every male protagonist... Uh, white male protagonist in movies is always like an architect or something because it's like one of these jobs where you can make a lot of money or whatever and people don't question it they're just like oh he's an architect so this one it's like oh he's a photographer just just like he's probably well off yeah but like the guy that yeah and the guy that he calls the cops on though is like a salesman or something so presumably like not as fancy as jimmy stewart maybe i don't know I don't feel like there's a lot of class politics in this movie, but maybe. Mm. Well, he was just very judgy of, like, the Miss Torso, like, the dancer, and I don't know. Maybe that's just because he just didn't like people, though. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's weird. um, Because it is, again, also just about, like, movie watching as well. It's like, why are we so fascinated by seeing other people's lives or, like, reading or whatever? Oh my god, I had this thought, this shower thought the other day, Pablo, <laughs> about how Plato's cave is a projection on a wall. And I, too, project my TV on a wall with a projector. And I was like, wait, this is why I find reality so funny. And I'm always making commentary because reality is just mystery science theater 3K and you're just watching a movie being projected before you and my opinion is probably not just you who's making fun of it other <laughs> right. beings or spirits who can see our universe <laughs> like look at these idiots <laughs> well hopefully that's what they think <laughs> um oh and we forgot about one of the neighbors which was meant to mirror jimmy stewart which was like a, a newlywed couple i don't remember them it was like they definitely show them like going into the bedroom to fuck and then like the wife is being like, oh, come in here and fuck me. And then um, later on, she just becomes the nagging wife and they're sick of each other by the end because the honeymoon phase is over. And I was like, no, it's the nagging wife stereotype. Isn't that Miss Lonely Hearts, the one who's like all sad and lonely for some reason and like keeps having dates over? She was on the bottom floor, but this couple was on the left side of the rear window view. They were in a diff- different apartment. I don't think they got as much time. I guess they didn't know them. <laughs> but yeah, there's definitely something about like nagging women in this movie. Ah, oh, fucking women. Always trying to get in the way of the man. <laughs> Why can't they just let him spy and be a peeping Tom? 
oh, several married couples, one of them is new, newlyweds, and one is a middle-aged couple with the dog. So there's, a, yeah, and then the be- the bedridden wife and the salesman. So there was a newlywed couple, but I don't think they got as much time. I see that Grace Kelly won a bunch of awards for this, which is warranted. Yeah, she was good. I liked her. I felt kind of bad that she was with this guy who's kind of judgy. I just like that she felt like an actual human being and not just like some archetype or like a thing. And so did the nurse or whatever. Right, because they both actually get kind of into it. They're like, really? Do you really think that? And they're like, okay, let's really investigate this. And they all get like emotionally invested in it. And it's kind of like, it is kind of the Scooby gang. (laughs) And I think we're definitely supposed to be more on their side than we are, like this crazy recluse. That's true. Yeah, I think it is kind of supposed to teach him a, a bit of a lesson that people do matter. Speaking of crazy recluses, that's almost the perfect uh, segue to Castaway, unless you have anything else to say about Rear Window. Oh, no, that's the ending of it, so yeah. But again, yeah, I just thought Rear Window was really well-paced and just really a really good movie and still holds up. Oh, yeah, definitely higher quality than the other two we watched i think so you seem to really not like castaway but i actually really like it so let's talk let's get into it (laughs) so this is a robert zemeckis movie who of course did forrest gump back to the future all these like recent terrible cgi movies and he's always like playing with uh experimenting with like technology and stuff Hmm. Uh, he's also really involved in like who framed roger rabbit and things oh interesting okay and yeah castaway was at the turn of the century so or turn of the millennium 2000 oh i had no idea he also directed contact i literally never knew that (laughs) and then he did some movie called what lies beneath which is really bad i don't know if you ever saw that one it's like uh harrison ford michelle pfeiffer and some stupid supernatural bullshit no that movie's terrible we should maybe do that one sometime but anyway let's talk about this movie (laughs) oh wait so he kept he Oh, he first did Forrest Gump with Tom Hanks and then it's did like a this reunion. With Tom Hanks. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So I think one thing that's really notable about this movie is that the show Lost wouldn't exist without it because I think the initial idea for Lost was Castaway plus Survivor. And then they gave us some people who were actually like good at writing, so they made it into something pretty cool. <gasps> that is a weird part of the Zeitgeist. Survivor was around the same time. Yeah, so somehow we were all thinking about desert islands and getting like lost. We were all thinking about Robinson Crusoe again. Right, yeah, definitely. So this goes well in line with those types of uh, things. Um, now we can see like The Martian and other movies like that of just like, what can you do to survive when you're on your own? Uh, there's like a bunch of kids' books like it too The Hatchet, Far Side of the Mountain. I was really into these books for some reason. I guess I just like the idea of like getting around, away from people and just like doing your own thing, maybe. Uh, Mm -hmm. Lord of the Flies. So this isn't even a two-hander. It's basically a one-hander. It's just like Tom Hanks by himself uh, in the middle of the South Pacific for the entire movie, almost. Yeah, it's like technically Helen Hunt is in this, but only at the beginning and the end. And she's not very good, or I don't even know if I can blame her, but just like the chemistry between the two of them is like non-existent. And I think you and I had both said that it would have been way better if it had been like Meg Ryan or something, (laughs) since they obviously already have the chemistry. Bring back the reunion from... The Republican and the Democrat romance. Well, you've got mail. <laughs> and this is another movie that was kind of a surprise hit uh, because it was made for $90 million. I assume they just had to like go to the uh, island and then just do some CGI for the plane. And then it made about 420, $430 million almost. 
Okay, well, $89 million of that cost was for the painting Wilson's face on perfectly. <laughs> it was what Tom Hanks uh, asked for to cut his hand open and like bleed all over a volleyball. <laughs> Just, I want to say the thread, the common thread between, there's a common thread between this and Home Alone, which is kind of being um just focused on money and the superficial stuff and wronging the spirit of christmas oh yeah he gets on the wrong side of father christmas because it all starts on christmas a christmas flight so yeah i mean and also the product placement is insane throughout this movie uh the wilson ball fedex FedEx. but yeah the start of this movie is he's just like a total workaholic and he's just like obsessed with that and he won't even like propose to his long-suffering girlfriend or whatever Again, he won't propose. Because <laughs> he's, like, too into his own job and, like, being on time. And, like, he has this whole stupid speech at the beginning where he's just like, we have to make sure things get there on time. And blah, blah, blah. FedEx is the best. Oh, yeah. He's a FedEx company stooge going around pumping up the employees. Yeah. Oh, he's like um, George Clooney in that movie where he has to fire people or whatever. But the opposite. Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he's kind of like a yuppie or, I don't know, just, yeah, like a corporate stooge. Exactly. He's very, he's not very deep, that's for sure. And his, I guess his girlfriend kind of is, though, because she's, like, an academic getting her PhD or something. That's true. Um, and they kind of show him at the beginning, uh, hanging out with his family. I guess they're having, like, a Christmas dinner. But he seems, like, uh, not into it or, like, thinking about other <laughs> things. Like, he has a toothache that he doesn't want to resolve. Oh, yeah. But basically all of that's just nonsense, like, set up and doesn't even really matter. It's not that relevant to the actual film itself. Uh, but he has to make like an emergency flight to Malaysia because the workers are complaining or some shit. He's like, oh, people won't get their Christmas gifts on time. He's like, we got to go bust this union and then I'll be back. Yeah, I got to go bust up this union that's talking. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) He has to be the man. Oh, and the music uh, for this movie was by Alan Silvestri, and I think the music's also really good. Uh, He's the same guy who composed Back to the Future soundtrack um, and also the Avengers more recently. I think he did Avengers and Infinity War. Probably also Endgame. Yeah, there's definitely a few tracks from this soundtrack that I listen to just, like, randomly. Uh, and I feel like it. <laughs> so, yeah, there's all this, like, setup with the plane about how it's just, like, sort of a last-minute flight. And maybe they don't do all the preparations that they need to do. And um, the reason why he's lost is, like, the transmitter is lost as well. So they literally are searching way far off from where he is. Mm-hmm. although it's kind of ridiculous like where in the world is there an island where nobody is that you could just get lost in this day and age like in robinson crusoe it made sense because there's it's like the age of exploration old times yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true i mean i think that maybe it must have been a pretty small island and i guess maybe there are some like that around the pacific i don't know that was how they tried to justify it i think just some islands are really small and mostly rocky but yeah, it was interesting that he actually had, like, food. You know, he had, like, enough coconuts and crabs coming at him, I guess. Yeah. To live that long. <laughs> oh, Tom Hanks won the uh, 58th Golden Globe Award for Best Actor for this movie. Mm. And you can definitely see, like, his commitment to this role. Like, he lost a bunch of pounds uh, in between. There's, like, a time jump in the middle where he, like, is suddenly oh, freakishly yeah. skinny. Yeah, he's definitely not thriving. He lost weight, but he's, like, sur- barely surviving, Sinewy. Yeah, he's just, like, yeah. sinewy and tan. And I think they probably filmed it in reverse order or something. Like, they probably had him do that stuff first and then went back and, like, filmed all the other stuff. I'm not sure exactly. Mm. 
I know there was probably just like an actual time jump in real life mm-hmm. for him to lose all the weight or gain all the weight, whatever the case may be. Yeah, because I was I I hadn't remembered the movie like that actually where they detail the very beginning of his shipwreck or plane wreck or whatever and how he kind of sets up his life and then they cut to like the end of it after he is all sinewy like you said and I I did not remember it like that but uh yeah it's a really shocking cut because it's like basically he's doing uh do-it-yourself dental work on himself uh, because he has a cavity or whatever (laughs) so he like takes a uh ice skate ice skate and like use a rock to like wedge out his tooth or whatever which seems like it would be graphic but i think it's mostly just built up in your mind and if you actually just watch it's not that bad but anyway uh after that there's like three years later or something like that or three or four years later and you're just like what the fuck yeah i was like whoa okay and we should also mention that this entire movie has sort of a framing narrative which is like there's this random welder uh who sends a fedex package and there's like uh, symbol on it that's like a butterfly or something and that's like the package that he holds onto and has to deliver and that sort of helps him keep going aside from Wilson yeah I think he opens all the other packages that he got left with so that's how he got the ice skate and and Wilson and and that's the whole Robinson Crusoe thing of being like uh, pragmatic and like a proper British person in that one and American in this one where you have to like make good use of all the things you have but he finds, like, random crap, like a dress or something like that. It's turn into things. Mm-hmm. So it's anti-capitalist again in certain ways, because, like, oh, we have all this useless crap. Like, what can we actually use? I was just thinking it's funny that he, um... Yeah, because he both was living for delivering that final package, and also he had a picture, I think, of his wife, probably or girlfriend, probably from his wallet or something. So he had that, and I think he told her, like you kept me going or at the end he says some exposition like she kept me going i was like but wait it was also the package which one was it which one was it (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's primo jo material he has like a wall he uses (laughs) super explicit like in the movie happiness i mean i guess yeah they could have shown more like they could have been even even more serious (laughs) splat (laughs) i was just I was just thinking that the tooth removal would just be something in Home Alone that they did as a joke to torment the other guys. Wake up! I tied your tooth to a rope. Yeah. I'm gonna slam the door and close the door. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine the tone of Home Alone over Castaway. Right. Oh, Helen Hunt's a botanist. I wrote it down here. Ooh. Hmm. Instead of giving her a wedding ring, he should have gotten her a vibrator. Been like, you'll need this. <laughs> When I'm gone. But yeah, somehow this is a Christmas film, technically, even though there's nothing very Christmassy about it. Mm-hmm. Though it did come out, like, right before Christmas. Um, I do love, right. like, the tone itself is very realistic. Like, it's very stripped down. Uh, I think this is around the time when people were sort of, like, experimenting between digital and uh, film. So there's a real focus on the tone of just, like, having it be very realistic. Like, he has to go find uh, people's bodies or something, and they're, like, bloated corpses, which is gross, but it's also, like, that's what it would be like, probably. Mm-hmm. Like, the few elements of CGI they use are just, like, when he's crashing the plane, which, again, is pretty realistically depicted, even if you know it's CGI they're using. Maybe the waves is any of that stuff, where he's, like, in the storm. Yeah, I think most of that was probably CGI. This is probably around the same time as, um, shoot, what was it? Oh, The Perfect Storm, which had the big deal about, like, the CGI waves. 
Mm. I remember seeing some like making of jaws or something and how they were just in a pool like dropping like a fake leg to like fall down and <laughs> stuff like that the effects were like real but it was just like a random pool <laughs> like <laughs> uh, you can almost think of like the movie 128 hour 127 hours whatever 128 hours where it's very visceral you're like right with him you're like in his body and you're feeling all these like bodily things like he eats the bad thing and like has to throw up and mm-hmm. he accidentally cuts his hand and like gets it all over the wilson volleyball uh, oh yeah, you f- he's like mad or he gets lonely or Oh, there's like a whole section. There's all these emotions. Yeah, there's a whole section at the beginning where he's like trying to figure out how to open coconuts cuz he's hungry. And that's how he cuts his hand and then he eventually figures it out. Mhm. And they also do the contrast with like he tries to catch fish using a net he made uh, and then later they show how he's like a pro at catching fish. Oh yeah, does he become a f- uh, he uses a spear, right? Yeah, in the in the flash forward. Mhm. He uses a spear. Oh, and then he mentions that the coconut milk would be a diuretic, so it's not the best thing. But then he learns how to eat it with crab or something like that. Because the next thing right. he focuses on is, like, making fire. It's a pretty good sequence. He's just like, I made fire! Oh, yeah, it's like the... Yeah, that's kind of a trope of, like, yes, we finally made fire! It's very naked and afraid, too. I wonder if they kind of stole the idea for this. Hmm. So, yeah, a lot of it's just, like, learning about the island, and you hear even more about how he, like, sort of canvassed the entire island when he does the flash forward and he's, like, talking to Wilson. Right. Where he's just like, it's a terrible island, I want to get off it. <laughs> and then there's a the contrast, he, he uses a, I guess he just makes a little uh, raft out of some debris in the life raft, but he isn't able to, like, get over the waves. Oh, yeah, I guess he had a trial and a fa- big failure... And then he has, and then he finally gets um, some other piece of plastic or something. It's the hero's journey. <laughs> I finally got some washed up plastic. Yes. <laughs> of course, you kind of need Wilson because otherwise he has nobody to talk to. He's just like talking to himself the whole time. Right. Yeah. He and the. It's interesting. I guess he has kind of um, an odd couple relationship or something with Wilson, where he's kind of like sassing Wilson a little bit. Right. He's like, "What are you looking at?" <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say he draws some really crappy drawings of Helen Hunt. Oh, yeah. He's making his own porn. <laughs> um, should we talk about how his, like, lowest point, I guess, is he tried to kill himself but failed or something or got scared? And I actually really like the way they communicate that information to you because it's kind of, like, cryptic, like, a few references mm-hmm. he makes he's to Wilson. He's talking to Wilson. Yeah, he's like, we don't go up there, you know why. And then eventually he has to get rope for the, uh, he figures out he can make a ship, uh, sorry, a boat out of, like, a Porter John wall or something like that. Out of, yeah, pl- wall plastic. <laughs> it washed up later, years later. Yeah, so he's like, I need to get the rope, and then he goes up there, and you kind of realize that he had to, um, I think this is also later on he tells his friend, like, what happened, uh, so you kind of had to piece mm-hmm. it together using those three pieces. Uh, and he's like, yeah, I got really low, but you know me, I had to like test it with a dummy. Uh, but then it kind of broke or something like that, and he realized it wouldn't kill him. Or just mm-hmm. like horribly uh, injure him, but not actually kill him. Right. So yeah, basically the whole theme of the movie is like, what do you hold on to when you've got nothing, essentially? Yeah, like at the end, I think that he kind of just says... Um you know, even though Helen Hunt moved on or whatever, you know, she gave me something to live for. And I'm not, I'm not really sure what, yeah, the lesson is supposed to be from this movie. What am I supposed to take away from this? 
I guess. I mean, all these movies about survival have sort of the same themes. One is like, it is good to get away from civilization, and you do find out that you don't need all the stuff to survive. Mm-hmm. You can also imagine like going out to the desert is something similar. And then just like, what do you actually need to survive? Uh, and then just kind of it's like... family! Yeah, and then also just like that primal thing about humanity, which is like, we are animals at the end of it. We do need these certain things to survive and you don't really need all this other crap. And, you know, what's that strength? Like, who are you when you're stripped down to nothing? Yeah, so take that Scrooge McDuck <laughs> and learn the spirit of Christmas or whatever. Learn the spirit of Christmas, damn it. Yeah, it's also being, like, grateful for what you have instead of being, like, sort of an ingrate and, like, not caring and not really, like, noticing the things you have. Right, yeah, don't take anything for granted. Let's see, he, like, leaves a note before he departs the island it's like, to whom it may concern, I, Bender, <laughs> I've been trapped on this island. Could it not be uh, possible, nay probable? Imagine- <laughs> My ma- or someone At else's this? imagination? Yeah. <laughs> well, I was thinking that, yeah, about but all of these movies is there is an element of like unreliable narrator or something where it's like Kevin McAllister goes to sleep and then he wakes up and his whole family's magically gone after he wishes them away. Right. And then like uh castaway, it's like just an abrupt scene where he, I think he's like napping on the plane or something. And then he's like thrown out of the plane all of a sudden. Yeah. I mean, castaway um, could definitely be a dream before dying. Right. And then, uh, yeah, rear window, he could just kind of be all making it up. You know, he's he's all hopped up on meds. He's like, yeah, prescribed cocaine and heroin and whatever else they did. Right. It's just his feverish med dream. (laughs) So, yeah, when we're home alone, I guess that, yeah, when we're home alone, can we really trust our own just our own perspective or do we need our community to help ground us Hmm, in reality? I mean, I think we all are definitely feeling that these days. (laughs) We talk about after this. Right. <laughs> There's a dramatic storm he encounters, and that's when he, like, wakes up, or, like, he doesn't wake up, and Wilson kind of, like, floats off the boat, and then he wakes up, and there's that famous Wilson scene, which is still really sad, I think. He's like, Wilson, oh, yeah. I'm sorry, Wilson. He has to keep going on, because if he tried to get Wilson, he would just keep going forever. Right, they show the waves keep pushing the boat further away, and he has, like, a rope, and he's like, I can either try to get the stupid ball and die, or I can just get back on the mm-hmm. boat. It's a very Titanic scene. It's like, well, there's room for two people on the <laughs> door, but... Oh my god, wasn't Titanic in, like, 1999 or 2002? Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I'll never let go, except when I do. <laughs> Oops, I got cold. <laughs> well, it's also lucky that eventually he does get uh, noticed by, like, a, I think a fishing boat. Because otherwise, like, his boat's been basically destroyed by the storm, and he has no supplies, really. So, otherwise, he'd just die, I guess. Yep, it was complete luck. He's like, oh, I was just uh, off the coast of Taipei or something this whole time. <laughs> oh, that was, like, the hatchet. Uh, he was just, like, or there was an ending or something where he, maybe it was a, a sequel book where the ending was that he was actually nearby some people, but they just thought he was, like, a remote camper off on his own. So they left him alone. <laughs> well, they were, oh, that's funny. They wrote The Hatchet, and then uh, a few years later, they wrote Brian's Winter, which imagines, like, what if he hadn't got rescued when he did? So imagines, mm-hmm. like, how he survives through the winter. I think that's, that's mm-hmm. the one you're talking about, I think. And they made a bunch of other stupid sequels where it's like, he goes back with some adult, then the adult dies, so he has to do the exact same thing again. <laughs> how can this exact same thing happen to the same guy five times? Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. uh, they should have made Castaway 2, Wilson's Revenge. 
<laughs> Wilson yeah, I feel like he would be haunted. I was like, did he have dream nightmares about leaving, abandoning Wilson and like f- having survivor's guilt about Wilson or something? <laughs> and the plane crash. And just like in the hatchet and all these other things, once he gets back to civilization, he can't quite like fit in again because he feels like different. Mm-hmm. He goes to Helen Hunt and he tells her this whole story and she's like, oh, I got a haircut. <laughs> 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 but actually she got married and had a kid or whatever. <laughs> with his friend oh yeah there even though that was just like smushed in at the end it was kind of funny like um i do remember that the most where it's like he's coming back like maybe she's still available please let her still be available oh wait nope she's married with kids but then she's totally (laughs) willing to run off with him she like runs out to him in the rain and they like make out or whatever and she's like i never stopped looking for you blah 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 blah. and he's like no no go back Well, I think, yeah, I mean, she kisses him, but I think they both kind of agree. Like, sorry, it's like, it's just too late. The timing is wrong now. It's just, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's an ultra contrived scenario to begin with. Right. I think they said they had a funeral for him, but I forget what they said they buried. Maybe his watch. (laughs) His favorite porn mag. Oh, it's also really mean because the husband of uh, Kelly, I guess is Helen Hunt's character's name, doesn't want her to see him. She, like, tries to get in the way. So it has to be, like, he has to come, like, way later after hours. Oh. Because they're supposed to meet in, like, the office. Yes, they have to bro it out. They have to fight over the woman instead of it being, like, an understanding, like, oh, you should be able to see her because you just had this horrible experience. No, instead he has to be possessive over helen hunt yeah then uh he learns the spirit of christmas and it's appreciative and he's like oh now i can just like turn on the lights or like turn on a stove and get fire (laughs) yes or like have any food i want whenever he's like i'm an american cheeseburger (laughs) like tony stark right (laughs) yeah he gets back and goes straight to mcdonald's (laughs) i guess it's kind of also the tablo rasa thing like uh, if you're out there and you have nothing that connects you to your former life, you're basically like a blank slate. Mm-hmm. Or maybe a Walden Pond or whatever the fuck. <laughs> you should go try living out in nature in a giant mansion by the lake. Go stare at your reflection like uh, a narcissist in the Walden Pond. <laughs> hmm. I wrote down that Kelly apparently never finished her dissertation. There's some weird commentary there about not being able to do Yeah, it I think it... I think we're supposed to kind of be like, oh, well, she was, her soulmate was really that castaway guy, but unfortunately, like, she thought he was dead. <laughs> Oops. She never got over it. <laughs> I did uh, think the scene where he's, like, talking to the friend about, like, uh, what he was holding on to or, like, uh, I don't know, various things, how he almost committed suicide, blah, 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 blah. I thought that scene was probably, like, the strongest dramatic scene in the movie. Uh, though again I don't at all buy Tom Hanks and Helen Hunt as a couple but if you just insert like whatever actual couple or whatever it's a pretty strong scene Uh, and then the ending he's just like driving around the post-apocalyptic wasteland I'm just kidding he's just driving around the US uh, and he wants to deliver the package that he kept all that time to the person who uh, tried to send it I guess oh yeah that's right so he might it's kind of left like open-ended like he could date this lady now oh and that's totally an angel reference in this movie too actually because mm, the wings were on the box and that was like her company or welding symbol or something like that her totem yeah he like leaves the package and then as he's driving away he passes by the woman uh in her truck they like smile at each other and she has the same uh thing painted on her car 
Right. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it was like he had a guardian angel. And it was ultimately about, it was like anti-suicide because it was um, saying, oh, any, you know, you could, your lot you in life could change happen. at any moment. Yeah. Like, lucky that he didn't commit suicide because then he got this piece of Porter John or whatever that saved him. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, wow, Home Alone and uh, Castaway really had a lot of, like, the Christian stuff going on in there. Yeah, I mean, Home Alone had a ton of Catholic imagery. Like, he goes to mm-hmm. a Catholic church and they play, like, that really religious-sounding song. Mm-hmm. The something of the bells. Carol of the bells, yeah. Oh, and then I wrote down that it'd be funny if inside the box was the script plus DVD for Castaway. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> I also noticed at the end of the film, they said no animals had been harmed. So I guess they must have had a specially trained stunt crab or something. Yes, they had a specially trained stunt crab and then, you know, very brief CGI, right? When they had to stab or something like that. I don't know. All right. So tell me, why did you not like this movie? What about the tarantula in Home Alone? Oh, yeah. Lots of animals. <laughs> Was that one harmed? That's probably fine. Yeah, I think just sort of, like, the heavy-handedness of Castaway just, like, um, I don't know, I didn't really get anything out of, like, just seeing a guy, like, try to utilize resources and survive on an island, and that's what most of the movie is. What if it was a woman on an island? I guess. I mean, I guess anyone. It's just, like, I'd rather see people, like, talking through issues or something like that (laughs) on screen. I don't know. But you did watch Survivor, didn't you? Wait, the, the show. reality show? Yeah. I think at first. I think I might have tuned into the first season because they made such a big deal out of it. Um, But I didn't keep up with it. I will say, if you look at uh, Tom Hanks' filmography, like he obviously had like a bunch of cheesy, corny movies in like the 80s and 90s. Some of them were big, some of them weren't. Literally big. Uh, <laughs> he just yells at uh, softball players all the time in a league of their own. Yeah. <laughs> Which we also saw randomly, but not really to this. Um, yeah. <laughs> but he kind of had a hot streak, like, starting in the 90s. Like, he was in Sleepless in Seattle. That was a big hit. He was in Philadelphia. I think he got an Oscar for that one. He was in Forrest Gump. Got an Oscar for that one. Apollo 13. Oh also really well received. Toy Story. Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. You've Got Mail, which we previously covered. Ugh. Toy Story God. 2. And then The Green Mile before this. Wow. We need to... I'm done with Tom Hanks. I'm over it. <laughs> I mean, I would do. I totally do the terminal at some point, but yeah, <laughs> I get you. Oh, true, but yeah, no new movies, no new movies. I do really like Road to Perdition. You should check that one out if you haven't. At some point, mm. that one I would vouch for. Okay. And definitely not the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> I kind of after this, it kind of cooled a bit. He did Catch Me If You Can was obviously really popular, but then a bunch of like sort of misfires. Oh misfires yeah he um he was in that disclosure documentary on netflix because of bosom buddies i saw a clip so yeah all these movies had these people at the height of their power (laughs) oh yeah i had i had heard of disclosure i guess oh because bosom buddies is like sort of making fun of the idea of like trans people or whatever somehow yeah it's like a cis cis men dressing up as women giving people that impression but there was like tons of movies and tv shows like that Oh yeah, I think just I think in the documentary they have just a bunch of clips, and that was just one of them. So they try to summarize it. And a lot of that kind of comes from Shakespeare times, because he has all sorts of things about men being confused with women, women dressing up as men, blah blah blah, over and over again. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of weird. I don't know. And of course, the historical fact that most of the female characters were played by men. 
All right, so those have been three films that were surprisingly successful, one of which was definitely good, one of which one of us liked, and one of which we both agree is terrible and weirdly <laughs> successful. That's a that's a good point. They were all uh, financially successful uh, movies about isolation. I wonder I guess. who made a deal with the devil for Home Alone. <laughs> so weird. I know. I'm like... How did this capture the, Imagination. the minds of the audience? It's like, oh man, what if you yeah. were a kid and you did run around and you did make Rube Goldberg machines to kill people? <laughs> Somehow they were fine. It was like all the latchkey kids wish they could do this or something. I mean, it is kind of like sadistic because you as the kid are like, oh man, what's going to happen to Marv or Harry next? And it kind of each thing <laughs> kind of builds on it, the next. Like first the guy can't get up the stairwell, then he like burns his head, then he has to go back to the snow or whatever. It's like they're the cog in the Rube Goldberg machine. Yeah, you know what I have to say about these three movies is I don't I don't really agree with, you know, punitive measures for teaching people lessons, you know? So listen to that spirit of Christmas next time you think about with people. abandoning someone on an island or something. <laughs> <laughs> Just to teach them a there. lesson. Do you like Christmas now? <laughs> After four years being stuck on an island? <laughs> and definitely take the law into yeah. your hands when necessary. Right. Don't call the cops. Definitely stand your ground. Make sure people aren't spying on you when you're obviously murdering people. Yeah, I guess, yeah, a lot of neighbors are watching. Just keep that in mind. All right. That sounds pretty good to me. Yes. Good chatting with you. Good chatting with you.